Welcome to Rocking Our Priors. I am your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, here's a question for you. Why have some countries undergone rapid cultural change, while others are marked by persistence? And why does social norm policing often revolve around gender? Question mark. One key mediating factor is the great economic divergence. Some countries are now rich, while others remain poor. In places with weak job creation and chronic precarity, people remain heavily dependent on kinship networks. Men maintain their inclusion in these vital networks by ensuring their families conform to established strictures. Fear of social exclusion motivates an instrumental concern for approval. Now here's another hypothesis. Insecurity and instability, exacerbated by conflicts and ecological threats, may also generate an intrinsic desire for group conformity and norm enforcement. So in this podcast, I want to contrast those instrumental and also those intrinsic desires, looking at the evidence of those mechanisms. But economics is not the whole story. Mexico and Turkey have similar GDP per capita, yet Mexicans have become considerably more liberal, secular, and supportive of gender equality. So precarity only explains part of cultural persistence. So my argument about how obedience secures trust and favoritism closely parallels uh, Darren Ajimoglu's theory about how labour market expectations shape parenting. He argues, and I quote, in low-wage environments, low-income families impart values of obedience to prevent disadvantage in the labour market, end quote. Fearing unemployment and long job queues, working-class parents teach their kids to obey in order to maintain their employer's favour. Now, Ajimoglu's theory about courting employers is equally true of kin. He argues, and I quote again, obedient workers are less likely to deviate from the rules imposed on them by their employers and hence require a lower efficiency wage premium. Yes, indeed. And that's end quote. People prefer to do business with those they can trust. And that's precisely how kinship works. As Joe Henrik observes, families may patronise patronize, patronize their uncle's shop, even if it is neither the cheapest nor the best quality. Workers and sellers are able to outdo market competition if they can offer unparalleled trust of mutual reciprocation. Kinship networks then act like monopsonist employers in a way, providing vital lifelines amidst chronic precarity. Okay, so that's uh, Jim Ogle's theory, and let me build on that in relation to kinship and underdevelopment. Most Indians remain trapped in agricultural or informal small-scale employment. They lack regular paychecks, let alone you know, insurance against unemployment and workplace injury. When Indians need help, access to raw materials, markets, loans, jobs, they turn to their trusted caste network. Insiders have long derived great benefit from their jati and strengthened trust through endogamous wedlock. 
Caste panchayats, that's assemblies of older men, have built trust in caste networks by overseeing women's sexuality and reproduction. You know, if a, if a woman rejected an arranged marriage, her, the caste panchayat might severely fine her family or even outcast them, prohibiting future marriages, cutting off their social networks and their sources of uh, mutual insurance. So an entire lineage could be alienated and expelled from the village because of one daughter's misdeeds. Punishing deviation, specifically women's deviation, builds trust within jati. Outmarriage within India is still 5% in rural India. So that tells us the strength of traditional networks. Now, India's cities, especially the smaller ones, are rife with caste-based residential segregation. Segregation by caste is actually more widespread than segregation by socioeconomic status. Ambedkar famously decried the village and a quote is a sink of localism, a den of ignorance, narrow-mindedness and communalism. End quote. But thanks to South Asia's pattern of economic development, those same institutions have been transported to the cities. Let me continue. Uh, there are parallels in Arab economies. You know, these are segmented into insiders and outsiders. Insiders benefit from state protection, contracts, subsidies, licenses, and land. Outsiders remain trapped in precarity. Economically, this retards public's, uh, private sector job creation, small firms struggle to grow, and they remain largely based in the family. Now, as a result of this precarity, Arabs continue to rely heavily on what they call wasta, and I'm probably mispronouncing that. Social connections are necessary to access jobs, secure permits, avoid trickery, and resolve conflicts. Even middle-class professional Jordanians acquire social insurance from their kin. Now, inclusion for Arabs and Indians alike is contingent upon maintaining trust and family honour which is easily damaged by rumours of female impropriety. Marriages are thus the linchpin of kinship networks. And since brides marry into men's families, they're socialised to please their in-laws and preserve their marriages at all costs. Loyalty is culturally esteemed. Girls are encouraged to put family first, police themselves and protect family honour. Good girls, in inverted commas, learn to stay quiet. Fear of expulsion from kinship networks motivates families to school women for subordination and enforce endogamy. Divorce is so intolerable that many Indian newlyweds can coercively extract larger dowries by beating their wives. Her family would rather pay up than let her leave. By suppressing dissent, kinship networks remain intact. So, so that is a sort of hypothesis that precarity is breeding this reliance on kin, which in turn motivates strict conformity. So that's similar to Ajimoglu's argument that working class parents instill obedience in order to advance their children's economic prospects in low wage environments. So, so both of those theories are saying, you know, this is an instrumental motivation. But that's only one hypothesis. Let me share another from Michelle Gelfand and co-authors. They suggest that insecurity and instability 
both of which are exacerbated by conflicts and ecological threats, these can generate an intrinsic desire for conformity and norm enforcement. Working-class Americans, who often work in dangerous jobs, worry about making the rent and have little social security, tend to extol obedience and authoritarianism. Their moral codes seem to extend beyond employment. Contrary to the Ajimoglu theory, when given a choice of pens, if you have four green and one orange, 72% of working class participants chose the majority colour. They seem to value conformity, even if it had no labour market returns. Now, maybe that's an offshoot of parental discipline, but it seems different. And a wider body of evidence suggests that when people feel under siege, they may seek strength through unity, want norm violators to be punished, and increasingly conceptualize God as punitive. Earthquakes seem to increase religiosity, especially among districts rarely hit by earthquakes. Pakistanis whose homes were completely damaged by an earthquake were much more likely to be religious. Unemployment is another big shock. It soared in 1970s Egypt. Failing to secure white-collar work, many graduates found solace in religion. They turned to the Muslim Brotherhood. Clerics declared their economic and military failures of the state to be punishments for aping the West. Men sought to restore order by demanding veiling, harassing women in the streets, and enforcing patriarchal dominance. Let me give another example from Europe. Germans exposed to terror attacks are actually more likely to vote for the far right, especially if they're less educated and politically active. This holds even though 75% of attacks are by the far right. After terrorist terrorist attacks across Europe, German Twitter users also adopted the language of the far right. Immigrants and Muslims became more common uh, terminology on Twitter. And that shift in language is correlated with more votes for the far right. Now, none of this happens automatically or mechanically. Humans are not robots. Everything is up for grabs and subject to ideological persuasion. But there is at least some evidence that organisations preaching obedience can increase their followings under conditions of insecurity. Now, does precarity increase an instrumental or an intrinsic desire for conformity? Based on the available data, it seems hard to say. Both Ajimoglu and Gelfand may be right. But, now here's a plot twist, economic underdevelopment does not entail cultural conformity. Latin America, the Middle East and North Africa have similar economic growth trajectories. But Latin America has undergone rapid cultural change. This includes rising secularization, female employment, feminist activism, and representation. Economic precarity does not therefore deterministically entail social conformity. During my interviews in Mexico City, Puebla, Cholula, Atlixco, Oaxaca City, and Telecolula, people emphasize that historically strong concern for social approval has considerably weakened. Sophia, a 55-year-old cleaner, working in a love motel, encapsulated growing individualism. And let me quote from, from our conversation. Now, this is translated into English. We're always criticising. We're always 
eating each other. You see how she is dressed, showing her low legs very provocatively. Sometimes they criticize you talking to a man, not even knowing it's a relative. People talk about it, but people aren't going to give you anything to eat. They're always going to talk about it, whether you're working or not working. I don't care what they think, as long as I know I'm doing the right thing and I ask nothing of them. When my daughter was a teenager and went to university, she wore what she likes. I said to my daughter, you have the right. The times are changing. Just take care of yourself. Tell me who you're going with and what time you arrive. They have to learn in life what is right, what is bad and what is good. You interact with people and you learn how to take care of yourself. I wish my daughter had been married, but it was her decision. I did not force her. I told my daughter, it's your decision whether you want to get married or not. I cannot oblige. Previously, we were forced to marry because they worried what people would think, but not anymore. Some divorce after a year, as long as they know how to understand each other. I don't care what people talk about me or don't talk about me, as long as I know I'm not doing anything wrong and I'm right. If people care about you because they appreciate and love you, but if they do not appreciate you, they do not care what happens to you. So again and again, my Mexican participants really emphasized that concern for gossip had radically weakened. Now, the reasons for Latin America's rapid cultural change require another podcast. But for now, let me just share this as evidence that economic underdevelopment does not mechanically entail cultural conformity. Okay, so let me summarize. Humans are incredibly inventive. In some cultures, they mitigate precarity through close-knit reliance on kin, which in turn motivates strict conformity. Insecurity could also be motivating an intrinsic desire for normative policing. Both mechanisms often revolve around concerns, control of women's bodies, but neither are inevitable. In Latin America, but less so the Middle East and North Africa, there has been radical cultural disruption and growing gender equality. I am Dr. Alice Evans, and this is Rocking Our Prize. Thank you so much for listening, and take care.